so I have, uh, I have good news this morning and I have bad news. Mission Ebenezer Family Church. We are in the uh, epistle of Romans. So you can go ahead and start flipping there. We've been working our way through the first chapter. And so we are finding ourselves this morning um, in the, uh, the second half or the second section of the first chapter of, uh, of the book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Um, so I have good news and bad news. What do you want to hear first, church? The bad, you, negative, you guys are negative. You're like, I want to hear the bad news, right? <laughs> because you want to end on a good note and hear the good news, right? You don't want to leave, leave the bad taste of the bad news in your mouth. Okay, all right, so I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news this morning as we open up the book of Romans chapter one is that you are all terrible sinners, okay? And when I say you, let me make you feel a little bit better. I am too, okay? So we are terrible sinners. Sometimes we're aware of our sin. Sometimes we're, 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 we're intentionally knowing what we're doing and we, we decide to keep going in that direction even though we know we're not right. Uh, sometimes we, we, we think a certain way, we talk a certain way, we act a certain way, we behave a certain way, and we're aware of it, and, and we're not yet ready to let go of those actions. We're not yet ready to let go of those thoughts. We're not yet ready to let go of those things. And so, so sometimes we are in a place where we are, we are intentionally disobeying what we know is right. Other times, that sin that we deal with is stuff that we're not even aware of just yet. And we kind of need for, for the Holy Spirit or for somebody else or for the Word of God to, to dig a little deeper to, to uh, allow us to be convicted of that sin so that we could deal with that sin, right? So the bad news this morning is we carry this thing called sin, and it's a big deal. Somebody say it's a big deal, right? Oftentimes what we try to do in culture is we try to make sin less of a big deal because we just compare ourselves to other sinners. And as long as I'm not sinning as bad as they are, then I'm not that bad of a person. And if I'm not that bad of a person, then I guess I should be okay with God. What happens is when we think we're okay enough or we're good enough, then that is the exact thing that causes us to stay far away from God. Because we don't feel a need to run toward God. Well, I don't need to run toward God because I'm pretty much good, right? Like all these other people are horrible and I'm like just kind of bad, you know? And so as long as on the spectrum I'm not way over there, then I'm fine. And, and by coming to that conclusion that I'm fine is actually the worst place we could be in because when we think we're fine, we're unaware of all that God has done, wants to do, and is willing to do in our lives to help us deal with that issue of sin, and we don't deal with it because we think we're good enough. And I think that's the big problem with us today, right, is instead of really looking at our sin, and we, we, we instead feel uncomfortable doing that, and so we'd rather just compare ourselves to other sinners, right? There's nothing in the Bible that says, as long as you're better than most people, then you're going to go to heaven. There's nothing in the Bible that says, Jesus came and died on the cross, took all of our sin upon himself, so that those of us who carry sin can find redemption, salvation, forgiveness, healing, and reconciliation through his work for us, but... Most of you don't really need him because you're pretty much good on your own. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about that, right? Jesus didn't just die for some and then the rest of us kind of get to heaven by our own good works or by the fact that we're just not that bad. 
The Bible talks about sin. Romans 1 talks about sin. We're going to talk about that. Okay, do you want to hear the good news now? All right. Uh, Kay over here in the second row is like, yes, please, good news. Come on, come on. Bring it on, bring it on, good news. Well, the good news is that big issue that we have, that big sin challenge, that sin issue, that sin condition, that, that sin problem that we carry isn't something that we have to carry alone. That sin problem isn't something that God is, is looking at us saying, well, you're on your own on that one because you dug yourself into that hole, so good luck getting yourself out of it. The good news is we don't have to deal with sin on our own, but that God sent his own son, Jesus, to come and to take our sin upon ourselves because there was no way that in our own doing we could work our way back into right relationship with a holy and perfect God. So Jesus is like, hey, I got you. It, it, it reminds me, like working at a college, there are students that come in, and some of them come into college underprepared to succeed for that year. Maybe their high schools or elementary schools and middle schools didn't quite get them ready for college-level readiness, and they show up, and their writing skills are poor, and their math skills are poor, and they're showing up in class struggling, right? And then all of a sudden, somebody comes over from the tutoring center and the writing center, right? And they say, hey, Included in your tuition is the fact that you have access to unlimited tutoring resources and writing resources. Just come on over and we can help you out, right? And it reminds me how many students say, you know what, I can figure this out on my own. Well, that's what it's kind of like for us this morning as we think about this issue of sin. Somebody say sin. It's okay to talk about sin. I know there's a lot of churches and teaching today that uh, try to shy away from sin. I've even heard some say, well, the reason why some churches shy away from sin is because it makes people feel uncomfortable. And if it makes people feel uncomfortable, they're less likely to come to church. And so because we want them to feel comfortable and stay in church, let's not talk about sin so much. Right? Uh, and the reason why we don't believe that is good and healthy practice for the church is because if we don't adequately deal with the sin issue, we will never fully understand the salvation promise. If we don't know what we're carrying that's holding us back, then we won't truly appreciate what God has done to help us get through those problems of sin that we carry. Right? If I think I'm good enough all on my own, then the cross doesn't mean anything to me. The blood the, uh, on Jesus' back, the holes in his hands, the scars don't mean anything to me when I can pretty much make my way to heaven as long as I'm good enough. And as long as I don't sin too much, right? Or as long as I sprinkle a little uh, religious fairy dust at the end of my day when I've done a whole bunch of sinning and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. It doesn't really work that way. So, so to the good news on the other side of the bad news is that God sees us in our brokenness. God sees us in our sin. God sees us in our struggle. God sees us in our experiences in pain. God knows what we've been through. God knows where we come from. God knows how we've made mistakes. And God knows how others made mistakes that negatively impacted us. And so God knows all of our story and all of the stuff that we carry, whether we are carrying the burden of our own volitional sin 
sin or the burden of somebody else's sin that was dumped on us in the form of abuse and neglect and other kinds of things. God knows the impact and effect of sin on our life. And because of that, he sent a perfect sacrifice. The only high priest that we have who is seated at the right hand of the father to come down from heaven and to take your sin and my sin and your brokenness and my brokenness and your mistakes and my mistakes unto himself to the cross so that at the cross all of that stuff past present and future was taken to be crucified and killed so that our sin was buried in the grave and when he rose again on the third day then the the promise and power of Jesus' resurrection is available for us today that we don't have to keep living in that sin and that lifestyle and those decisions and those burdens and pain and wounds and experiences but the promise of Jesus is that on the third day when he came to new life that new life is available for you and me today so the bad news is we all got it it's like COVID times a million right we all got the symptoms right arrogance check denial check right Um, callousness check disobedience check Laziness, check. We all got the symptoms. And Jesus says, hey, you know, I've been working out this deal with Pfizer. Right? And there, there is no other way to deal with that problem than to, to have my blood in your, in your veins. Right? There, there's no other way to deal with that sin issue than to have access to the one who took sin upon himself, conquered sin, defeated it, got up again. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to live that way any longer. Isn't that awesome? That's the good news. So let's back up a little bit. I gave you the quick version, but let's back up and take a look at what Paul is talking about in Romans so that we could understand what's going on here. I want to, we're really going to focus on verse 18 and and to the end of the chapter, but in order to understand verse 18, some of you were here last week, or excuse me, the week before, because last week we focused in on on talking about with uh, World Vision, Um, but the week before that, we were talking about the the passage of chapter 1 leading up to verse 18. So I want to rewind just a little bit and start at verse 16 of uh, uh, in the NIV. If that's all right with the crew in the back, I think I might have given them verse 18, but I think they're ready to rock and roll. Thank you all. Um, let's give it up for the tech crew in the back who's always doing a great job um, providing an opportunity for us to share the gospel uh, um, broadly. Praise God. Okay, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Somebody say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul talking to the gathering of believers in Rome. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is, not, that is by faith from first to last Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So he starts here in this section of chapter 1 by saying, hey, I want to talk about the good news. I want to talk about the good news of Jesus. I want to talk about the good news of God because it is the power of God that brings salvation. 
And so when he continues here into verse 18, what he's essentially saying is, in order for us to truly appreciate the invitation of salvation, we have to know what we're being saved from. Right? Do I even need to be saved? Who do I need to be saved by? How is it that I'm going to be saved? All of those questions are things we don't think about when we don't think we're in a precarious situation. If we think we're pretty safe, then why do I need to be saved? If we think we got it all together, then why do I need somebody to come and to deliver me from whatever it is that they think that I'm in bondage to? So Paul wants to make sure that everybody is aware, me included, you included, that there's a big problem, right? I appreciate, I'll just, let me give you a quick side note in leadership and communication. I appreciate it when good leaders, whether they be, you know, CEOs, presidents of organizations, do a good job of being honest about the problems that you're facing. Because oftentimes leaders, you know what, let's not get too much into the problems because we want to keep the morale high. And so let's talk about the good things and and celebrate the good things, but let's leave the problems out because that's going to be a downer. But I actually believe that when we can adequately and appropriately address problems, it allows us to really understand the beauty and benefit of really good solutions. Right? When, I could, when we could stand up and say, you know what, this isn't going well, this isn't going well, and this isn't going well. And this is how we know those things aren't going well, and this is what's going to happen if those things continue to not go well. To me, that's really good leadership. right? Because from there we could say, but we can address those things. And if we do this, 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 and that, then we'll address that problem. And if we do these three things, then we'll address that problem. And next thing you know, those things will no longer be problems. They'll be things we're standing up here celebrating about, right? When we're able to adequately address problems. So the Apostle Paul is being a good leader because before he tells them the really good news of what Jesus has done and all the implications of what that means, he wants to dive deeper into the implications of the bad news. Is that all right? Okay, so let's go to verse 18. So first, let's just summarize and recap those first two verses by saying there's salvation available and it's available to everybody, essentially is what Paul's saying, right? A Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, there's salvation and it's available. And embedded into that description and declaration is the fact that there's a salvation that we need. Somebody say amen. Okay, so verse 18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Somebody say from heaven. Against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Are we following so far in what Paul is saying in this this letter to the church at Rome? He's saying the wrath of God. Somebody say the wrath of God. Now, I don't know about you, but the, 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 the wrath of God is not the kind of wrath that I want to be messing with, right? And uh, when I think about Paul coming here and saying, you know, some people say, you know what, the gospel, we need to just show people how much God loves them. And if we just focus in on how much God loves them, then we're going to be just fine. But it's a two-sided coin to the gospel, Right? The two-sided coin of the gospel is, yes, God loves you. John 3.16 is clear. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son. We understand that. But also, there is an expectation that God has on us when he created us that he wants us to live according to his will. And when we choose time after time to disobey his invitation to live according to his will, it kind of makes God angry. Some of you are like, oh, wait, God gets angry? Yes. 
And I want to share this cautiously because I know that some have grown up in church contexts where the only thing you knew was the anger of God. And it created fear and distance, and you didn't want to be around an angry God, right? You didn't want to associate with a God who was always getting ready to judge you. And so maybe for, for, those, for some of you, you are really familiar with the wrath of God. And maybe for some of you, you are not familiar at all with the wrath of God because the only thing you've ever heard of is the love of God. But I love that, you know, the, the, the imagery and analogy of parenthood isn't a perfect way to understand theology, but it does get us a few steps closer. Because as a good parent, there are moments in trying to be a good parent when you are going to be filled gushing with love for your children. Am I right about that? Right? Uh, when your child had been struggling all semester, and then all of a sudden they bring home a grade that was like one or two grades above what you had expected them to bring home. They had, they were, had C, 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 C. All of a sudden they show you the report card, and it says A on it. Right? Parents, you're like, oh, my, we're, we are going to Dairy Queen. We are going to celebrate. I am so proud of you. Right? Or when your kid, you know, scores a basket in basketball or makes a goal in soccer or makes a touchdown or whatever it might be, right? There's this, like, you are so proud. You are so filled with love, right? I don't know about you, but for me, like, when I, when I see my kids being generous with each other, like, I'm just like, oh, man, I'll give you anything you want right now because I love seeing you treat each other well, right? As opposed to, like, annoying each other and irritating each other, getting on each other's nerves. So there are moments when we are filled with love for our children, right? Maybe even thinking about the day that your kids were born. Can you remember that day, right? Can you remember holding your baby for the first time and all the feelings that came along with that, right? That's a powerful, special moment, isn't it? So parenting is involved, you know, it, it involves a number of those kinds of loving emotions and moments when we are just gushing with emotion for our kids. But there are also moments as parents where we get a little bit upset, maybe a lot a bit upset, maybe too upset, right? Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, you need to get to school to drop them off on time, and you, you realize that you only have 10 minutes to do it, and school is 11 minutes away. And yet, for whatever reason, all the yelling, getting them into the car with their teeth brushed and lunches packed and buckled up, for whatever reason, you still believe that you could get them there on time, right? All the yelling, all the language, right? I know some of you, after that drop-off, you were just like, all right, Lord, it's just going to be me and you because I just said a whole bunch of words that I know you're not pleased with to get my kids to school on time, Right? But, but there's, there's, there's moments, even in a, in a parenting life, where, again, we're filled with emotions of love, but then also there's a moments where we're filled with emotions of, of disappointment, of frustration, of anger, right? Um, and there's nothing, and I'll speak for myself, I don't want to speak for every parent here, but there's nothing that probably taps into that parent anger more than when we've actually had a conversation with our kids about something, and they heard it, and they knew what was better, and still decided to not do it, to go against what we said, right? Right? Because if they make a mistake, and it's like, you know what, they just need to be reminded, or maybe they didn't even know that that was actually something that was expected of them, so we kind of have a little bit more grace, like, let's just go over that again. Let's talk through that again. Are we clear on these expectations, right? But when you sat down and had the conversation, and then right after, they still did the thing that you had talked about, you feel really happy, don't you? You feel really, like, proud of them, 
and full of love um, and, and kind words. No, you don't, right? You feel upset. You feel disrespected, right? You feel, you feel angry because oftentimes as parents, what we're trying to do is what's best for our kids, and so when they go against us, what we're essentially mad at isn't so much that, they, yes, we are mad that they disobeyed, but what we're even more mad is that they're going to have a pattern of doing things that are going to harm themselves. They're going to have a pattern of not having enough self-discipline to do the thing that is right, and instead they're going to be uh, impulsive or compulsive to do certain things, even if the implications and ramifications are going to cause them to be in a lot of trouble. So that irritates us because we don't want to see our kids go in a path of self-destructive behaviors, right? I'll give you an example. The loudest I ever yell at my kids. Some of you are like, you yell at your kids, Pastor? Yes, I do. Not often, though. I, I, I must say, not often. But the loudest I ever yell at my kids, because I've got a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old, is when my four-year-old, who was recently three, right, doesn't understand the rules of how to cross a, a street safely, right? The loudest he's ever heard my voice is when he's taken two steps into the street, thinking that he knows how to cross the street safely, but not knowing how to look left and look right and not recognizing that he's so short, no pickup truck that's lifted is ever going to see him. And that elicits something from me as a father. Micaiah! Get back! Right? So for him, he's like, why is my dad so mad at me right now? When in my own internal process, my, my mind starts to picture him being harmed. So even as we talk about the wrath of God in verse 18 of chapter 1, God's wrath isn't coming from a place of being um, um, isn't coming from a place of, of even moral correctness. I think God's wrath is coming from a place that he knows that when we walk continually in a path towards sin, we're walking toward hell. And the last thing a heavenly father wants for their children is to see their children walk straight into hell. So Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, okay, against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their own wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it Plain. God, somebody say, God has made it plain. Right? I, I think it's interesting even to think of that, that uh, th this, this aspect of his argument where he's saying God has made it plain because there are certain uh, uh, expectations of us as individuals that are fairly universal and common sense. Like you could go to almost any culture over thousands of years and look at their legal codes and moral codes and religious codes and you're going to find some similarities there. Like don't kill other people. Like should that even be a commandment? Like isn't that basic? Like don't kill people, right? You can go from culture to culture, continent to continent, generation to generation, and it's kind of agreed upon that killing people is bad, Right? Or stealing what doesn't belong to you, bad, don't do it. Or lying and being dishonest about something, bad, don't do it. There are certain things that are kind of common, and, and so whenever you see that sociologically, it makes you take a step back and to say, where did they get it from? Was there like some kind of 
roundtable discussion for all cultures that said, these are some common things that we should all commit to? Or did God implant something into our hearts to let us know what's right and what's wrong? We call it our conscience, right? But God does something even more than just a conscience by, by, by speaking to us, by, by convicting us when we did or said something that we shouldn't have, or, or by, 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 by doing something that we know is not right. There's something in us that starts to self-correct. That's where guilt comes from. Some of you are like, man, I, don't, I can't stand guilt. Guilt is terrible. But what I would say is sometimes guilt can be good because if guilt causes us to not do the same thing over and over again, then God just used guilt to get us back on track. So even guilt isn't always bad, right? Uh, I, I think about this often when I talk with people and there's this kind of like new age cultural, uh, you know, uh, um, truth that people put out there where they say no regrets, no regrets. And I'm like, well, if you don't have regrets, that either means you were Jesus or you're prideful. Like those are the only way you can have no regrets because I got plenty of regrets, right? I have plenty of moments that I wish I could do over. Okay, that's called a regret, right? And if I say I don't have any regrets, then what I'm saying is I'm always right. And if I think I'm always right, well, then guess what? That's called arrogance and pride. And what happens with arrogance and pride? It keeps us away from salvation. It keeps us away from being humble, from being able to say, you know what? I'm sorry, right? The only way that we say sorry is when we made a mistake. But if I got no regrets, I've made no mistakes. So here Paul's saying it's, it's being revealed, Right? And we're kind of already aware because God has made it plain to them. God has made it plain to them. Let's go, continue into verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities or attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Somebody say without excuse. So Paul is saying here, and I think this is important to, to think of the context of who he's writing to. He's writing to this church in Rome. The majority of them probably are non-Jewish, right? The majority of them are probably coming from like an Italian descent because they're right there in Rome. And so they're, they're, they're part of this Roman Empire. And, and, and part of the Roman Empire was, was Roman uh, religion, right? And gods and goddesses and, and all of these different ways uh, of going about their own practice of religion, which was completely different from Jewish practice of religion. And so Paul's writing to a context of people that didn't know what Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy were all about. They weren't familiar with the Torah or with the Ten Commandments and the soul, but, but, but the Holy Spirit had already grabbed hold of their heart and they accepted Jesus, but they don't know yet all that comes along with this Judeo-Christian uh, pattern of, of, uh, of responding to the favor and faithfulness of God. So they're being discipled. Does that make sense? They are learning what it means to follow God and Paul's trying to teach them what that's like. And so this is a mixed congregation. Like I said, probably more Gentiles than Jews, but there were Jews that were there. And so Paul is starting with this foundation that there is sin and God's wrath is stirred up by virtue of what we do with that sin. And he's saying here is, you know, you might think like there might be uh, one way of looking at this situation and saying, well, they didn't really know any better. They didn't grow up, you know, in the synagogue. They didn't have a whole lot of Bible education. And Paul is saying they don't need all the Bible education because God, through his spirit, has already implanted in their heart when certain things are right or when certain things are wrong. So what happens to us when sin 
Our individual sin uh, is couched within a cultural movement to not just deal with that sin, but to accept that sin and allow that sin to change how we think and operate as a people. Right? What happens is, uh, if I'm doing something wrong, let's say uh, I am stealing, well, as long as I hang out with 10 other people that steal all the time, or maybe even 100 other people, and if I hang out with 1,000 other people that stealing is okay, then after a while, stealing is no longer bad. It's just what we do. Because we like to surround ourselves with people who think like us and act like us so that we could feel less guilty about the things we know are not right. As long as enough people around me think the same way, talk the same way, act the same way, then after a certain period of time, that becomes right. Does that make sense? And so, so, so our behaviors are now justified because everybody else is doing it. It's not that bad, right? Okay, dating somebody in your 20s or 30s or 40s for those who are single and going out on dates and having sex before marriage, right? Uh, well, you know what? It's not that bad, but... If everybody else is doing it, then I guess it's not that wrong for me to do that as long as we're in a really loving relationship. No, no, no. That is allowing cultural expectations to rub off on us so that we're judging ourselves based on what everybody else is doing and not by what the word of God has to say. Right? But it becomes built into how we think and operate when we intentionally surround ourselves with people who are going to confirm our sin habits. Right? So if I don't like the feeling of guilt and remorse and, and, and feeling like there's something I need to do, then let me just go and be around others who are doing the same thing so that we could pat each other on the back and make sure everybody else knows that there's nothing wrong with this. Right? This is what happens in culture. And this is why the truth of the word of God needs to continue to bring us back to the foot of the cross. So Paul is saying, hey, those of you who didn't grow up in synagogue, those of you who didn't know the Ten Commandments, those of you who didn't have a rabbi teaching you how to live and think and worship God, guess what? You're not off the hook because God's already put something in you to know when you're not right. Right? He's saying you're without excuse because God has made it plain to us. Somebody say amen. Amen. And you can attest to that this morning. Some of you grew up in church. Some of you didn't grow up in church. But whether you grew up in church or not, when you were doing something that you know wasn't right, there was something in you that was telling you, hey, 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 probably don't want to be doing that. The challenge, and I want to call, I want to use a term this morning called calcified disobedience. The challenge is that the more and more we say no to that Holy Spirit in us, prompting us toward what is good and moving us away from what is bad, the, the more we grow calluses around our ability to discern right from wrong, and it allows us to feel comfortable in wrong more and more because we're numb now to that feeling that's trying to get us back on track. The voice of God begins to grow fainter and fainter every time we say no. Every time we say, I got this on my own. Every time we say, nah, that's not really the truth. I think I know what the truth is. We develop calcified disobedience, right? That, that over, over time causes us to be in a place where it's more and more difficult to actually discern the voice of God prompting us toward what is right and away from what is wrong, right? But Paul's saying, God has built in 
in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, clearly seen and understood. It reminds me that even as we kind of step out of city life and, and, and head toward the hills and go into the mountains or go stare at the ocean or look at the stars and the sun and the moon, it's interesting that we look at nature and everything points us toward God, right? We start thinking, man, how amazing is God for creating things this beautiful, this amazing, this intricate? And, and the more and more you study physics, and the more and more you study biology, the more you realize there's less and less that we actually understand about how all of this stuff works, right? You, you can get a picture of it, and then you get to a point where you're just like, man, something amazing is behind all of this, right? There's this uh, humility that comes from that. It, the, the interesting thing is, is that when we are like kind of in the middle of our intellectual pursuit is when the most pride comes. Because people who are like, Experts in their field, PhDs, and they're studying things, they're the first one to tell you how much they don't know, right? Somebody who doesn't know anything is the first one to tell you how much they don't know. But somebody who knows just enough all of a sudden is an expert, right? Oh, I don't believe in God. How could I believe in God when all of this other evidence points to this other thing? I believe in the Big Bang and fate and the universe, right? Okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. Um, here Paul is saying, since the, since the creation of the world, Everything else is bringing honor and glory to God. But the one aspect of his creation on the sixth day when he said, let us make man in our own image. And he said it wasn't just good, but it was very good. When God gave us the capacity to reason and the capacity to understand what is right from wrong, to have a conscience and the ability to feel, all of a sudden it's in that, uh, in that stage in development where we have our own free will to decide where we are the only aspect of all of creation that has deliberately chosen to disobey God. The trees still obey him. The waves obey him. The wind obeys him. The animals obey him. But we, the one aspect of creation that was supposed to be the crown of creation, has said, you know what, God? I think we got this on our own. Right? Look at verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let me read that one more time. Although they knew God. So again, Paul is kind of saying, hey, I'm not going to start making all kinds of excuses for you just because you're coming from a, a different religious background. And you have other gods and goddesses that you worship and, and all these different things. Paul is saying, no, 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 I think, I think, you, I think you knew what God was all about. They neither glorified him nor gave thanks to God, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Look at verse 22. It says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Morons. <laughs> although they claimed to be wise. Right? I, I want us just for a second to think of this. Let's be careful not to become so smart that we lose wisdom. Right? Proverbs chapter 1 says the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. You could gain all kinds of information through Google, but in order to get wisdom, you've got to have the fear of the Lord. Right? There are different ways to become smart, but if you want that, that intelligence to translate into wisdom, we need a foundation of God in our lives. A compass, a director, somebody who says, okay, let's do something with all that knowledge and not just be puffed up to the point where you think you're better than God. 
You're too good for God. You're too good for church. You're too smart for the Bible, whatever it may be. Paul is saying here, you thought you were so smart, you were actually fools. Right? Your thinking became futile and foolish, and your hearts were darkened. But I noticed that in verse 21, it says, because they neither glorified him nor gave thanks. Let's zoom in on that aspect of verse 21. Right? See, here's what happens when we give thanks to God. And I'm talking about the most basic things, the most elemental things. When we wake up in the morning and we say, God, you didn't promise me this morning. But when I got up, I heard some birds chirping. The sun was peering through my blinds, right? I got up out of a bed with a roof over my head with a cabinet with at least some top ramen in it and a fridge with at least a little bit of milk that's only three days old. So it's still good when you do the smell test. Like, if we could get up in the morning and say, God, I, I don't even have to get up out of my house just yet, and I've already got about a thousand reasons to be thankful. Amen. Lord, I walked out of my door this morning. Praise you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I even had a door to walk out of this morning. Thank you, Jesus. I praise you. I was walking into the, the driveway to my car. Thank you for a car. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Like, when, when we are trained to have a heart of thanksgiving, what it does is it puts us in our right place and it puts God in his right place. I didn't do all this on my own. I didn't achieve this on my own. God did it for me. That means there is a God who is good, who has provided. So I give you praise and glory and I worship you and I thank you because you've given me everything that I have. And you've saved me from so much. Probably a lot of which I'm not even aware of. And so I'll give you thanks for that too. Right, And so when we are trained to have a heart of, and a mind of thanksgiving and gratitude, then already it places us in a trajectory toward good worship, good theology, and good living. But when we begin to take for granted all that God has done, when we begin to assume that, you know what? I think I have a little bit of money in my bank account because I've worked really hard for it. And, uh, and I, I defeated all the odds because everybody counted me out. And so I, I've, I've done that. And it wasn't easy. And so I'm going to pat myself on the back for all that I've accomplished and everything that I've become because so many people told me I couldn't become this. So I, I've done it. And I, and, I, and I deserve it. And I deserve air in my lungs. And I, I deserve a good life. And I deserve health. And I deserve good relationships and friendships. And I deserve, and we go on the list, and rather than starting with gratitude, we start with entitlement, assuming that whatever it is that we have or should have is owed to us. Well, guess what happens when we, you know what it's like when your kids think something was owed to them. Right? And you go out of your way to do something. You throw them a nice birthday party with all the, the, all the, the, uh, the, the, the special, you know, trim and, and uh, uh, you know, things that are specific to their liking. And, and then and they don't even give you one thank you. Because they're kind of like, well, that's your job. You're my parent. You're supposed to give me a really awesome birthday party every year. It makes your next year's even better and bigger with more people and more toys and more gaming devices. You know, thanks for the, uh, what, what's the name of that store? The game, what's it called? GameStop. Thanks for the $50 GameStop gift card. It could have been 100 if you really love me. But uh, I guess I'll take the $50 game, GameStop card, right? Like, 
Like, isn't that what happened? And that's what happens spiritually when we uh, forget to recognize that God is and that God does good things for us. When we forget to start our day by saying, Lord, you are there and I am not you. And I just want to say thank you for that because that's too much pressure. I don't want to be, I don't need to be, and I am not my own God. But you are God and I am not. Thank you, Lord. That's a good place to start. God, I woke up with all this pressure trying to figure out how I'm going to orchestrate all these 10 things that are out of alignment in my life right now. And then I just realized that I don't have to orchestrate all that because you're God and you're in charge and you're in control. So today, this morning, before I start trying to act like I'm God, I'm going to declare that you are God and I'm not and that you are good. And I'm going to ask you, Lord, will you come and visit me in those 10 areas, please? That's a good place to start. So to, to, to acknowledge God, to, to declare that he is there, and then to be grateful and to demonstrate gratitude for all that he has done already begins to put us in a point where we are going in the right direction. Amen. But Paul is saying, you did not acknowledge him and you did not give him thanks. You thought you were your own God. You thought you had it all figured out. You thought you had everything on your own because of how good and smart and hardworking you are. Right? He goes on, and then he, and then he, he, he let, let's continue to go down, because I'm going to run out of time. I'm getting too excited about, about this, this story that, that Paul's writing to, to the church in Rome. Verse 24, he says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So Paul's saying here, hey, you forgot to acknowledge God. You forgot to give God thanks. Therefore, you started doing things on your own. And so God just said, you know what? I've reminded you over and over again. I've tried to come in and tell you. I've sent you my Holy Spirit to help direct you. You've told me no over and over again. And so at that point now, you have just uh, decided this is the direction you want to go in. And so now the wrath and the consequences that come from those decisions are coming your way. Right? Because there's only, a, you know, when you're talking with a friend and they're asking you for advice and you give them some godly advice, but they don't want to hear your godly advice because it doesn't confirm what they were hoping you would say. And then you tell them a second time, but in a loving way, like, hey, you're an adult. I'm not going to tell you how to live. I'm just giving you my opinion because you asked me for it. And, and you give it to them a second time and, and they still kind of don't want to do it. And then by the time they get to the third time and they're like, hey, what do you think I should do? You're like, you know what? Don't ask me anymore. Because I think I've already let you know a couple times what I think you should be considering in that moment. But so far, it seems like you've already got it figured out. So until you're ready to hear what I have to say, keep your thoughts to yourself. But if you want for me to actually give you a biblical thought, then let's have a conversation, right? You get to a point where you're like, I tried. I tried to, to let you know. And God is saying here, right, he has tried. But with that callousness that we have, that, that, uh, that, that calcified disobedience in us, then all of a sudden we're getting to a point where he's like, all right, you're going to be on your own pretty soon. That's a dangerous place to be. The beautiful thing about it is we know through scripture that even if we, in the prodigal son story is a great example in Luke 15, even when we do have that heart and heart and we make our own decision and we are left to go on our way, when, when we're ready to repent finally, when we're ready to turn around and say, I'm sorry and I want to do it differently, God is always willing to take us back. So I'm not saying this morning 
that you're going to get to a point where God's like, no more hope for you. I don't believe that's the case. But what I do believe is it, it is dangerous to play with, with God by saying, you know what, Lord, I'm just not ready yet. Because not ready yet can often lead to more and more separation from God. And your heavenly father wants relationship with you. Not sitting around hoping to judge you for all the things you've done wrong. He just wants you to avoid the things that are self-destructive, that are leading you toward hell. And he wants relationship with you. Wherever you are right now, whatever you're going through, whatever you're carrying, whatever sin it is that you're aware of or that you're becoming aware of, there, there is a God who is beckoning you today to say, you don't have to keep doing that. You don't have to keep going that because whatever it is that you're doing isn't actually going to give you what you're seeking, which is probably pleasure and satisfaction and acceptance. The greatest feeling that you could ever have is the feeling of knowing that you are forgiven and loved and accepted by your God. Drugs can't fill that hole. Sex can't fill that hole. Improper relationships can't fill that hole. All the money in the world can't fill that hole. Status, reputation, and fame can't fill that hole. That's a hole that only God can fill. And so Paul's saying here, man, don't get to the point where you are just completely cut off and released. And he, and he specifically points out sexual impurity. And I know in a lot of ways that's connected to this culture in Rome where part of their religious practices had to do with prostitution. And so Paul is saying, like, that ain't right. None of it is right. right? There, there, there are rules when it comes to what our body's like. That's why he teaches them later on. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? Because what we do with our body matters. It's not, we don't separate it and say these are spiritual things and these are body things. Paul is saying both our, our spirit and our body belongs to God. Impurity, not an impurity. Right? It says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Right? So, so in some ways, when I bring that to the modern context today, that could look like us worshiping a relationship, another person. That, that, could, be, that could be pornography and, and pursuing uh, illicit uh, uh, behaviors that are causing us to glorify the human body. In those days, they would set up Carving images, right? Carved images of, of animals, whether they be birds or whether they be a golden calf like the Israelites did. But essentially they were saying, you know what, we've got our own God right here. And Paul's saying, why? Why would we come to the point where we worship created things instead of worshiping the creator? Why, why would we sacrifice a relationship with the one who created us and instead replace it with created things? Verse 26 says, so because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. When we look at this passage, we're reminded Paul just starts calling out certain things that was happening in this context, and he wants to make it clear what is okay and acceptable and what is not. And what Paul is sharing here with us in Romans chapter 1 is God designed men to be in relationship with a woman, and God designed women to be in a relationship with a man.
where it gets twisted in our culture today is we are designed to have emotional intimacy with both genders. That's why it's important, mom and dad at home, right? For those of us who are, who are blessed to have a, a household where mom and dad are both there, it's important to have that presence because little boys need love from their dads and their moms, and little girls need love from their dads and their moms. Because God created us beautifully and richly, right? When you think about some of your closest friendships with, I know for myself, with my brothers or with some of my guy friends that I grew up with, emotional intimacy with men is so significant, but where it starts to go in places that God did not, did not design is when it starts to go into romantic and sexual relationships that God never intended. Right? And oftentimes that happens because of situations and things that occurred in the past that we have no control over. Abusive situations. Or, or situations where there's been neglect, and when we haven't had the right kind of emotional intimacy, which is the healthy kind, then what we often do is seek the unhealthy kind of intimacy. Right? And so what can we do as a church, right? Rather than standing out with picket signs telling everybody who's going to hell and who's not by their sexual choices, what we could do is love people right so that there's not a deficit in trying to receive good, healthy love in sexual and romantic ways that God never designed for. We are called, right, here, Paul is saying, Hey, there's all kinds of symptoms of sin. And this is, these are some of the examples that he begins to list. One of the symptoms of sin is the fact that people are confused about who to love and who to marry and who to have sex with. And Paul is saying this is God's design, but also let's recognize the brokenness behind some of those decisions. Right? Let's recognize that that didn't just happen overnight. I share that humbly as a, a pastor at a college where I, I spend time with young students in their 20s who are not sure where they are in their sexuality. And I consider it a, a privilege to sit down and listen and hear their stories and to not judge them by virtue of what they've shared with me in terms of their attraction. I want to be able to hear because there's a lot behind what caused them to think about making a decision. Oftentimes the church just says, nope, it's all wrong, it's all evil, and I don't even want to have a friendship with you. I don't want to talk with you. I'd rather pretend that you don't exist than to deal with the fact that there are issues and there are deep-seated issues that are underneath these things. It's not just a matter of somebody's sexual identification, but it's us being able to say, God, teach us not just how to judge and condemn, but to be the kind of church that pursues right living by virtue of your word while also recognizing that every person that walks into the door comes with brokenness. Right? So Paul calls it out and he says, hey, this is not, God never designed it to go this way. Right? And, and, and we, we see that and we, we recognize that there's a call for us as a church to recognize that and to live according to God's word. Um, so let's look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, and we're going to wrap this up because I'll be here all morning. <laughs> Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what they ought not to what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. 
They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So this is pretty harsh, isn't it? Paul isn't holding back any words in this first chapter of Romans. Um, the beautiful thing, please come back, because we are going to keep going in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and it gets better and better and better. I'll give you a quick sneak peek, because this was such a hard word. Romans chapter 8 is where we get to that point that says, what can separate us from the love of God, right? Neither height nor depth, neither angel nor demon. So, so I'm giving you a sneak peek, because if you just hang in there, we're going to get to chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. But chapter 1 is hard. Because it's putting in our face the fact that we are sinners and that we do not have the capacity to deal with that sin on our own and, and that we are not to allow ourselves to simply compare ourselves to the level of sin of those around us, but rather to look within and say, Lord, what in me is off? What are the things that I've been okay with, that I've allowed to creep in, the... the uh, the deception of sin is that when we are caused to think that our sin isn't that bad, it leaves the door open for greater and greater kinds of sin. When we allow ourselves to think, oh, you know, it's not that bad, this is okay, then all of a sudden that turns into something else and something else and something else until all of, the, all of, this, all of a sudden we are no longer striving to be in relationship with God because of the guilt of our own sin and shame. So Romans 1, I want for us to take this. And the other thing I don't want us to do is look at that list at the last few verses that we read and start saying, well, you know, where am I on that list? You know, like, did I score an A, a B, a C? I think the point that Paul is making here is essentially saying sin is contagious, it spreads quickly, and every single one of us are carrying it, right? We're carrying aspects of it. Um, for some of us, it may be really visible. and For others, it may be really invisible. For some of us, it may be in our actions, and for others, it may be in our thoughts or in our words. Um, what Paul is saying here is in order for us to really understand the good news that's coming, and he's going to explain all about who, what Jesus has done, we really need to come to grips with the pervasiveness of sin in our lives. Amen? As we get ready to close, I'm going to invite you to stand, if you're able, and... Um, and we are going to close together. Let me read one passage from Scripture that really, I think, highlights something we can take away from the, the verses that we've covered in Romans chapter 1. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says, For God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. We will never regret that kind of sorrow, but sorrow without repentance is the kind that results in death. Let me read it one more time. It's 2 Corinthians 7, 10. For God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. We will never regret that kind of sorrow, but sorrow without repentance is the kind that leads to death. So as we wrestle and grapple with this sin, I want to encourage you today, as we close in prayer, 
maybe even as you leave this place, what are some areas in your life that you need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I haven't really come to you and brought this to you before or recently because I'm embarrassed or I'm ashamed or or maybe I've just tried to convince myself that it's not that big of an issue. But I'm reminded today that it's a sin that you want to deal with and it's one that you no longer want me to carry. And if that's you, as we close in prayer, I want you to, to keep that in your heart so that that might lead you to repentance. What does repentance mean? Turning from it, right? Not just saying I'm sorry, but actually living a life that demonstrates that, that turning. So let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we come before you this morning um, giving you thanks for this really challenging word out of Romans 1 that reminds us of our brokenness, reminds us of our sin, and reminds us of our need for you. Uh, it doesn't always feel good. To, uh, to read through portions of scripture like this that highlight and point out maybe things that we're carrying, things that we've done. But we want to have enough humility to recognize that um, we don't want to live that way and we want to live rightly for you. So Lord, bring conviction. Holy Spirit, come and reveal to us the areas of our life that aren't right, that are out of alignment, that are leading to hell and destruction. We don't want that. We want a life filled with reconciliation, hope, and promise. So Lord, give us the courage um, to dive into those things in us that are off, the sin in us that needs to be rooted out. Um, Help us in that area, Lord. We can't do it on our own. Um, But we thank you for your word that is clear um, and the word that convicts because it's in that space that we are one step closer to experiencing the joy of your salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Come back for chapter two.